Father, we are just in awe of your holiness. And Lord, we approach you tonight wanting to have our minds shaped according to your word, which is the only true foundation for all truth and for a correct, accurate worldview. So Lord, we ask that we would, you would give us a spirit of humility to come and to sit at your feet, to learn from you, so that our thoughts, so that our minds and our lives would be more conformed to your word, to, to your glory. Lord, we, we, we understand, we know the importance of this, especially in light of just the, the secular age in which we live. The need is now more than ever to, to get into our Bibles and to know them. Lord, I ask that you would give us a firm foundation in your word, a firm commitment to your word tonight, so that our lives would be lived more by the book. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 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 Well, raise your hand if you have heard the phrase, he or she has rose-colored glasses. Have you guys heard that phrase before? That phrase basically means that somebody has a just a general positive outlook on life. Even in bad situations, a person with rose-colored glasses is always going to see the good. Not because their situation is good, but because the lenses through which they're viewing and evaluating their situation are rose-colored. I don't personally wear glasses, but for someone who has naturally blurry vision, if they go and buy a pair of corrective lenses and they put them on, now all of a sudden, everything, Lord willing, it works right, right? Everything that was once blurry now becomes clear. Not because everything out there was actually blurry and it changed and all of a sudden became clear, but because the lenses were put on so that the person could see clearly. Your lenses determine how you see the world around you. And they don't just determine how you see the world around you, they determine the way that you live too, right? If somebody has just constantly blurry vision, that's going to change their ability to do certain functions. Maybe their driving is going to be impaired, their writing is not going to be very good, whatever. But the way that the lenses change not only the, the view, but the life. So what is a world view? In, in simplistic terms, a world view is the view by which you see the world. Or in other words, the, the lens by which you look 
out onto the world. And, and a biblical worldview, therefore, is viewing your life and the world around you through the lens of the Bible. Just like your lenses, the lenses of, of glasses change the perception of the surroundings and the way that someone is able to live, a worldview does the same thing. Your worldview changes how you think and how you live. That's why I've, en I've entitled this session, Thinking and Living by the Book. So, a young lady grows up in church, but comes from a broken family, and is never instilled with a biblical sexual ethic. So she gets in high school. She falls for the first guy who shows interest in her. They start experimenting sexually. And she's pregnant at 15. What was in here and what was in here led to the way that she acted. A young college student is not taught wisdom and respect for authority. They're offered alcohol at a party. They're underage. They take it. They get drunk, and the cops show up and bust the party. And now the law school that they were hoping to get into is no longer interested in them because of their record. Someone is not taught the, the, the weightiness and the gravity of the existence of a real hell and the judgment of God and they don't have a, a drive, a motivation, a passion to go out and reach their lost family members and friends. And so those family members and friends go unreached with the gospel. What was in here and what was in here showed itself, impacted what was lived a, a, big, a biblical worldview is not just kind of standing back and evaluating. It's something that's incredibly personal. It has to do with the way that you and I actually live personally. And there are big stakes for thinking and living rightly. So how do we put on biblical lenses? Having ultimately having biblical lenses means understanding and believing just a few basic things about what the Bible teaches. And the more that you understand about what the Bible teaches, the more of this that you get in here, the more refined your worldview will become according to Scripture. But, big book, we've got 45 minutes. So we can't talk about every little nuance and intricacy of what is in here that informs our worldview. But there are a few foundational truths that I want to walk us through tonight so that it will give us a starting point. So these three foundational truths of a biblical worldview have to do with, number one, the author of the Bible— Number two, the nature of the Bible. And number three, the message of the Bible. So you have the author of the Bible, the nature of the Bible, and the message of the Bible.
the Bible. And by God's grace, these three foundations will help us see ourselves and the world around us through God's eyes. So let's begin with the author of the Bible. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be doing some flipping tonight, so get the thumbs ready, warmed up. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning in verse 16, the Apostle Paul says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So who wrote the Bible? God wrote the Bible. Now what do we know about God? Lots, actually. Not all there is to know, not even scratching the surface of all there is to know, but we know quite a lot about God. And every one of his attributes or every one of his characteristics is important for developing a Christian worldview. But I want to, go, I want to walk us through four of them tonight. I want to focus on four attributes of God and how they apply to a biblical worldview. The first one is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. This means that God is in control. Over all things. You don't have to turn there, but write this down. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of, of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. He declares the end from the beginning. He will accomplish all his purpose. He has spoken, and he will bring it to pass. He has purposed, and he will do it. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. God is sovereign. He is totally in control. And He does what He pleases. Even in evil and suffering, God is in control. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, there's, a, there's an incredible statement made by Joseph. He was a man who was sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt. And he experienced suffering after suffering after suffering, affliction after affliction, betrayal. But even through all that, God was gracious to him and allowed him to climb the rakes in the Egyptian empire. In which he eventually saved much of the known world at the time from a famine. And he says this to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive 
as they are today. Even in bad situations, even in evil, God is in control. He is in the driver's seat. So first we have the sovereignty of God. Secondly, we have the goodness of God. Psalm 119 verse 68 says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. By the way, I would encourage everyone after our retreat this weekend, Psalm 119 is a large psalm. It's 176 verses. Take the next week or so and read through that psalm a couple times. And see what it has to say about the Bible, about the Word of God. He is good. Psalm 145, verse 7 says, They shall pour forth the fame of your, being God, God's, abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So, not only is God sovereign, but God is also good. This means that every uh, decision that he makes, every plan that God has, is done with good intentions. He's good. The third, slash fourth, these kind of go together, but God is wise and all-knowing. God is wise and all-knowing. Job chapter 12, verse 13 says, With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. In Romans chapter 16, verse 27, the very last verse in the book of Romans, Paul says, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, say, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. So God is not only sovereign, God is not only good, but God is wise, and he knows everything. Fourthly, God is true. God is true. Jesus literally said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So God is sovereign, he is good, he is wise, all-knowing, and he is true. So, so what? So what? God's all of these things, great. So what? Here's the key to all of that. In the world in which we live, with at times everything seeming to be unraveling at the seams, there is a God who is in control over all of it. And he has good, wise, true purposes for it. There's nothing more fundamental because as we develop a Christian world view, it can get kind of depressing, right? We're viewing the world and all of a sudden we don't really want to view it anymore. We have to start with the trustworthiness of God. 
the trustworthiness of God. Because all of those things are true about God, we can trust him. See, if God was sovereign, but he wasn't good, and he wasn't wise, and he wasn't true, then he'd really just be an ignorant tyrant, right? He wouldn't know what to do, and he would just be making plans and kind of flying by the seat of his divine pants. But if he was just good, but he wasn't sovereign, and he wasn't wise, then he might have the best intentions, but no power to carry them out, and not really even sure that they're a good idea. If he was just wise and true, but not sovereign or good, he may be able to think of the best ideas, but may not have good intentions or the ability to actually carry out those ideas. God has a sovereign, good, wise, true plan. All of those things are true at the same time for you personally and the world around you. This provides the first foundation of a biblical world view. This means that we can trust him in good, in evil, in success, in failure, in marriage, in singleness, in poverty, in wealth, in whatever it is, we can trust him personally and we can trust him universally. Imagine that you come into class on the first day, syllabus day, everybody's favorite day. Actually, it was kind of my favorite day because, you know, a lot of times you got to get out early. So that's kind of nice. But, but you come in and it's syllabus day. You walk into class and you sit down at your desk. You open up your computer. You get on Canvas or whatever system you guys use at KU. I don't know what that is. But you get on Canvas to try to find the syllabus. And you can't find it. In fact, you can't even find your class. So perplexed and confused, you look up to the front desk. And to your surprise, there's nobody there. Okay? You wait five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes goes by. You're looking at your watch. It's now 15 minutes past when class was supposed to start, and no professor, and no syllabus. Well, right about that time, a guy walks in, poorly dressed and kind of smelly. And he's just scrolling through something on his phone. And he kind of saunters up to the front desk and he sits down and he just kind of scrolls and scrolls and scrolls. And everybody's just kind of looking at him, right? Like, who is this guy? And finally, you being you know, astute and passionate about your education, you raise your hand and you say, hey, are you the professor? And he looks up and he says, yeah. So, where's the syllabus? And he goes, what's a syllabus? So, immediately, you realize that this guy is totally inept, he has no plan, and he has zero intentions for actually leading the class. Now, imagine a different scenario. You walk in, you're right on time, maybe a couple minutes late like I was 
a time or two in college. Your professor is there behind his desk, behind his computer. He greets you with a warm smile. The syllabus is already up on the screen. Right at 9 o'clock or whenever your class was starting, he immediately welcomes the class to the semester, tells him a little bit about himself, and then he starts going through the syllabus. And it is like the most rock star, thorough syllabus covering you have ever heard. Right? Walks you through every major thing you need to be aware of to be set up for success for that semester. Now, given those two different scenarios, how is your outlook on the class different with the second professor as opposed to the first? Right? You can, you can go into that class with, with confidence because you know you have a professor who's competent, he knows what he's doing, he clearly cares about you, and you are going to be successful in the class. He's a professor who has purpose. He's a professor who has wisdom. He is in control every step of the way, and he is ultimately trustworthy. We have a sovereign God who's in control, who, as we just sang, is holy. There's none like him. Who has the absolute best intentions in every aspect of his plan. Who has made that plan, who has designed his plan with the utmost wisdom. And truthfulness. We can trust our God. And that makes all the difference to how we approach our world view. God is trustworthy. But because God is trustworthy, his word is also trustworthy. Our second foundation, the nature of the Bible. Look back at 2 Timothy 3. 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 20 through 21 say, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy uh, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. The most important thing for us to know about the Bible is what we just talked about in the first foundation, that it comes directly from God. All books are a reflection of their author, right? The creativity of a novel is a reflection of the creative mind of the author. So as we see the characteristics or the attributes of God, not only the ones that we just walked through, but all of the other ones, those are reflected in his word. So when God says in Ephesians 5.18 that, 
Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. There's goodness, and there's wisdom, and there's truthfulness to that. When he says in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's goodness, and there's wisdom, and there's truthfulness to God's design of humanity. As his image bearers, as male and female. When he says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. There's goodness, and there's wisdom, and there's truthfulness to that. Because God is trustworthy. His word is trustworthy. And because his word is trustworthy, it's really all we need. It is sufficient. Now, obviously, you won't, you know, this is not a science textbook. This is not a calculus textbook. The Bible won't teach you how to change your oil or whatever, right? But the Bible provides, remember, remember the key word here foundation the bible provides a foundation for everything else right so while the bible is not let's say a driving manual you won't see stop at red lights you know first john 2 5 or whatever right you won't see that it gives you a framework for when your driving manual says stop at red lights or when you don't stop at a red light and the cop pulls you over and says hey Stop at red lights. The Bible gives you a framework for understanding and learning and submitting to that. Like when it says in Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authority. So the governing authorities say, stop at red lights. So I stop at red lights. There's a million other examples that we could use. The Bible provides the foundation for right thinking, right living in Every sphere of life, bar none. It is, and by the way, if, you know, I'm, a, I'm a book recommendation guy. I want to I equip you guys. But if you want a really good study of biblical worldview, read Nancy Piercy's book, Total Truth. And her point in that book is that Christianity is not just an isolated set of ideas and doctrines that just applies to religion. It applies to everything. It's not just religious truth. It is total truth. It's, it's a little hefty. You know, it could double as a self-defense weapon too. So, you know, but it's great. It's great. The Bible is total truth. And it is totally sufficient. So what do we need to do to develop a biblical worldview? We need to know our Bibles. So, don't raise your hand. Not asking for hands. But how many days in the last week did you actually sit down and read your Bible? And maybe a bit more convicting, how much time did you spend actually reflecting on what you read and applying it to your daily life? How deeply are you in the Word? Often because of the secular age in which we live and the 
the constant exposure to information through media and all of those kinds of things, our exposure to unbiblical worldviews is much greater oftentimes than it is to biblical worldviews. All the more reason, all the more importance to be in the word. Uh, I think Spurgeon was the one who said something to the effect of read good books, but live in the Bible. Live in the Bible. Read it every day. Choose a time. Choose a place. Try to read for maybe 20 minutes at least. Get in the Word. I know it sounds so basic, but if you want a proper foundation for a biblical worldview, you need to get as much as you can possibly fit of this into this and into this. Be in your Bibles. That leads us to the third foundation of a biblical worldview, the message of the Bible. Now, we're not going to take too long. I'm not going to go into too much detail, detail here on the message. I want to give you a big picture. A lot of times we think of, when we think of the Bible, we think of like isolated verses, right? John 3, 16, right? We all know that verse, right? But the Bible is actually a story from Genesis to Revelation. There's one big theme and storyline that you can, you can track all throughout the Bible. The reason for that is because not only does the Bible have human authors that wrote individual books, but it has a divine author, the Holy Spirit, who as we read before in, in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 1 Peter 2, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, um, 20 through 21, I'll get it right, one of the Peters. Um, as we saw in those verses earlier, the Holy Spirit, God himself, has authored the Bible. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing we learn in the Bible is that there's a God and that he has created everything. We see going forward in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So not only did God create, He created us in His image to reflect Him, to represent him and to fulfill a particular task there's a word in genesis 126 that is key to understanding answering the big question why are we here there's one word dominion dominion we, we talked about in our xenos bible study on wednesday but the kingdom of god the kingdom of god god has created human beings as his representatives on the earth to rule on his behalf. There's a big problem. Those who were created as his representatives rebelled against him, or what we call sin. Those who were supposed to rule on his behalf actually rebelled against him. We find that in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, the first created 
humans believe the lie of Satan. Did God really say? By the way, in terms of threats to a biblical worldview, that today is still the biggest threat. In all of the, the, the lies and the false messages, did God really say? What Satan ultimately wants you to do, to do is doubt the authority and the truthfulness of Scripture, and ultimately the authority and truthfulness of God. That's why our first two foundations are so important. Adam and Eve believed the lie. They disobeyed the one rule they were given. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And therefore, as a result, as Paul says in Romans 5.12, death and sin were spread to all men after that. That's why, in one sense, why you and I sin. We're responsible for our own sin. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned and brought sin into the world. Yet God did not leave them without a glimmer of hope. And he says, as he's giving the curses to, to Adam, Eve, and the serpent, he says to the serpent, Satan, I will put enmity... This is Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there would be somebody, there would be a man who would come from the womb of Eve who would take it to Satan at some point in the future and would crush his head. Unfortunately, things don't get a whole lot better from there. Humanity plunges into rank rebellion and sin against God. And in Genesis chapter 6, God decides to wipe them out. Except for one man and his family, Noah. Noah survives the flood, but yet again, sin takes over. Humanity plunges yet again all the way into the Tower of Babel and through in Genesis chapter 11. But in Genesis chapter 12, we are introduced to a man by the name of Abram, or Abraham, as many of you probably know him. And he was told by God this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing from Abraham would come an entire nation of people, the nation of Israel. And Israel was given a task by God. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, he says that they, were, they will be a kingdom of priests, notice the language of ruling again, and a holy nation. Israel was uniquely called to play a special role in God's plan for humanity to rule on his behalf. But as we're all, as many of us are very familiar with, what did Israel do? They failed over and over and over and over again. So God judged them. He's not done with them, but he judges them. But through Israel would come a man. Would come the offspring who would crush the head of Satan. I heard somebody whisper it. Jesus, that's right. That's right. And Jesus came and he took care of the sin problem. He died so that the debt all of humanity owed 
for our sin could be paid for in full. And he rose to life on the third day. So that one day after we die, that won't be the end of the story. We will be raised. All those who have faith, not everybody, but all those who have faith in Christ and turn from their sins will one day be raised to eternal life. What will that eternal life look like? We get a picture of this in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Pay close attention to this verse. This is really key. We get a sneak peek into the new heavens and new earth. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Notice nations still. No longer will there be anything accursed. Sin will be gone. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Throne. Who sits on a throne? King. And his servants, that's you and I, believer, will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And hear this, and they will reign forever and ever. God's people will reign with him for all of eternity. What were Adam and Eve tasked to do? Dominion, rule, reign. What will believers be doing for all of eternity? Reigning with Christ. We've come full circle. The story of the Bible is about the restoration of God's kingdom reign through his son on earth, through his people. That's the story of the Bible. That's God's first priority, in other words. His reign. Now, if that's God's first priority, this has major impact for our worldview, right? Is that your first priority? Because here's the thing. If God's priority is not your priority, you'll never have a fully formed biblical worldview. So, how does it become our priority? It starts with submitting to God's rule in your life. It starts with coming to the end of yourself. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. So have you done that? I I, I know everyone in here would profess to have done that, but does your life actually reflect that? Honestly. Like, when you take a look at your heart, 
and at the actions that come from it, does it look like somebody whose life has been completely changed? From the old man, the old woman, to the new. It doesn't mean you stop sinning, but it means there's a change of affections, there's a change of desires. As I'm submitting my desires to him, it result in a change of life over time. So have you submitted to God's rule in your life? You'll never have a matured biblical worldview without that first step. Ever. Number two. Did I say this already? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. There's often a lot of question and concern about what God's will for my life is, especially during this age group, right? Anybody ever wondered that? What's God's will for my life? In a sense, every time you see a command in Scripture, do this, don't do this, or you see an example to follow in Scripture, guess what? That's God's will. Now, you, again, you're not going to find Mary so-and-so or, you know, pursue this career, and right? It's a foundation, but that's God's will. So, if you want to know God's will for you personally, if you want to know God's will for out here, the world, in other words, if you want to have a biblical worldview, read the Bible. Read many books, but live in the Bible. Third, reach the lost. Reach the lost. Understanding the world around you really does nothing if you're not trying to reach it other than foster a spirit of self-righteousness. The point of a biblical worldview is not to sit back on our high horses and think about and talk about how bad everybody else is. That's not the point. In order to reach them most effectively, we have to understand them so we can speak their language, so we can communicate, right, effectively. And by the way, how is God advancing his kingdom today? Is it through the Crusades and we're going to go take the Holy Land back? And No. God is advancing his kingdom today by regular Joes like us. With the friends that we have, with the family members that we have, with the coworkers we have, with the people that God has placed in our surroundings, reaching them, sharing the gospel, so that God may bring them to submission to Him. As King, as Lord, as Master. 
So, lest we come away from this weekend full up here, full, well, empty right here, and empty out here, our task for the kingdom's sake is to reach the lost. So are you doing that? Do you know the gospel well enough to share it with somebody else? If I gave you 60 seconds, could you share the, the gospel with me in a way that's understandable? All right, I always like to use the analogy, you know, you're in a plane and it's going down and you've got 60 seconds and everybody's life is on the line. What are you going to say, right? Could you share the gospel in 60 seconds or less? Are you reaching the lost? So, what glasses are you looking through? What's your lens? Do you personally know the author of the Bible, the nature of the Bible, and the message of the Bible well enough to bring the lenses of your mind into focus with his word so that you can actually go out and live the way that you're called to live? See, our, our hope and why we're having this retreat, one of the reasons we're having this retreat is that your lenses by which you see yourself and the world around you would be the sovereign, good, wise, all-knowing, true, sufficient, purpose-filled, kingdom-oriented word of God. Ultimately, our hope is that all of our worldviews would be more shaped by the book. All glory be to Christ for that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you just for your all-sufficient, wise, good, holy word. I thank you that you have stooped down to our level and language to be able to communicate to us so that you could reveal your will and your kingdom plan for us. Lord, we ask for a rock-solid, unshakable, immovable commitment to your word. Come what may. And for lives that are driven to reach the lost, to practice personal holiness, to put off sin and to put on Christ by the power of your spirit. So that the lenses of our minds would lead to a life lived by the book. We thank you for this time, Lord. And now ask your blessing on our breakout groups as we dig a little deeper. Lord, we want you to be honored. And it's to that end that we pray. Amen.